Palm Sunday, you can't ask for much better of a Sunday. I mean, across the whole church calendar, what's better than Palm Sunday? Well, maybe next week. You know, maybe, maybe next week, but, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Jesus didn't get ahead of himself. And he learned to enjoy each moment. And Palm Sunday is spectacular. Our king comes into town. That's worth celebrating. Our king comes into town. I've wondered often, if I were alive back then, and I was there for the first Palm Sunday, how would I have responded? What would I have done on that Palm Sunday? I really wonder sometimes. I, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd be waving the palm branches, I'd be throwing the cloak down, and I'd be watching Jesus, and I'd be shouting Hosanna. Man, do I hope that's true. <laughs> I hope that's true. Although there's days when I could be on the complete other end of the spectrum, and I could be the ones being like, you know, if this guy wasn't so ego-driven we'd probably be okay. He's got a lot of power. He's got great teaching. But he lets people worship him. Like, come on. Like, if you keep it in check, we could have something great going here. And I could see myself thinking that. I could see definitely being one who isn't necessarily accusing and says, maybe you guys should hold off with those comments. But also being a little too cool to be the one out there throwing my coat down and waving the palm branch, being a little more kind of sitting back and watching the whole scene. I could definitely see myself being one of the countless thousands who were so busy on that day that they had no idea Jesus was even coming to town. There's all sorts of ways that we can respond when Jesus comes around. Fortunately, I think that the context of this passage really helps us kind of discern where we're at when it comes to Jesus. You see, uh, we're not in a series on Luke. We're just using it this week and next week for Palm Sunday and Easter. But if you look at the book of Luke, it's broken up into different sections. And we've just entered a new section of the book of Luke when Jesus comes for his final return into Jerusalem and all that's taking place around it. And so if you look back, starting in the previous chapter in 18, you see a shift beginning to happen. And Jesus begins to give us a paradigm. The scriptures begin to show us a paradigm of models of faith. Those who have true faith and can really receive Jesus to at least a certain degree, and those who have a facade of faith, who can't really receive him, although they may be religious. And so he begins to, to show us this picture of faith in chapter 18, starting in verse 15. Now, before we go there and read, we're just going to kind of take a walk with Jesus on his road toward Jerusalem. But before we get there, I, I want to set the stage for you a little bit. Think about this. Jesus knows this is his last journey to Jerusalem. He's studied the scriptures intensely. He knows his father well. He's heard the prophetic word. He knows what's coming. He knows that in a week from now, he knows that very, very shortly around the corner, Everything's going to change. Jesus knows, he keeps saying it to his disciples, that this is it. I'm going to go, and I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. There's no shadow of a doubt in Jesus' mind what's about to happen. Because of that, I believe that Jesus' senses are acute. That he is attuned to every little thing that's happening. I believe that as Jesus walks down the road toward Jerusalem, as he heads from Galilee down south and as he begins to enter toward Jericho and, and over to Jerusalem, that he's looking at the nature that he created. And he's looking at 
at the flowers in bloom and hearing the birds chirp, soaking it up, enjoying it. Now Jesus, he's not like us. He's not crippled by fear. So even though he knows what's coming, I mean, this is his choice. He's the one who's going after it. And there's no question that it's a tough, tough, tough thing. We see it in Gethsemane. And yet Jesus is one who tells us, don't worry about tomorrow. Let tomorrow worry about itself. Worry about today. And so I believe that Jesus is in the moment, but he's informed by the future. And so he knows this is it, and he lives right here, hearing those birds chirp, watching those flowers bloom. And more than anything else, you know that Jesus is so attentive to the people he comes in contact with. Because how he relates to these people soon is going to drastically change. For a long period of time, he will no longer relate to them physically, only spiritually. Because he will be removed physically. His eyes now are looking on him, looking on them with those physical eyes. He gets to actually touch them physically. It's all going to change. And I believe that Jesus is just absolutely intently looking at every person along his path. Watch the interactions of Jesus as he walks toward Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. Chapter 18 of Luke, starting in verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. If anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And so Jesus begins to lay out the paradigm of true faith. He shows us that faith is like that of a child. How does a child come to us? Needy, dependent, uninhibited, knowing that they have needs. The children are coming to be blessed. So often when we come to God, we don't come knowing the true needs within us. Not dependent. I love what's going on. I mean, think about this. As Jesus is headed the last walk down to Jerusalem, can you imagine if the children are coming to him, the joy that children bring, you know? What a great moment for him to have kids around him. And yet these guys are trying to keep the kids away from him. Can you feel inside of Jesus this thing that's like, no, don't keep them away from me. I want to soak this moment up. When's the next time that I get to hold a child in my physical arms? Bring the child to me. Bring the children to me. Look, the way these kids look at me, this is faith. The way these kids come to me, this is faith. Well, verse 18, he begins to show us the other side. A certain young ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You'll remember that when we, we just finished up the relationship series. When we started the relationship series, we started it with lining up your loves. And this is the passage that we talked about in lining up your loves. You'll remember that the, the questions that Jesus is about to ask him about whether he's kept the commandments, all those commandments refer to the, to the, second, of the second set of the Ten Commandments that have to do with how we interact with one another. 
remember all of that? That's the, the context we use. Well, here it is. A certain ruler asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice Jesus' response. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. I love his response. Again, Jesus, aware of this man's heart as soon as he walks up. Here's a guy who's got it all together. You know, I, I picture this guy as a stellar looking guy. He's like a, he's like a model, you know. And just a great looking guy. He's got it all together. He's been a good guy. He's taking care of business. He's, he's got a position of authority. He is one who everyone would look to. Like he's that kind of guy. You know? And he comes walking up and he says, good teacher. He's being diplomatic. He's, he's almost bordering on flattery. Of course he knows the power of Jesus, but good teacher. He's a way of approaching him and, and giving him something. And Jesus so why'd you call me good? Why did you call me good, young man? No one's actually good except God. Listen to Jesus' question. Young man, am I God to you? No one is good except God. Did you call me good because you mean it? No one's good except God. Or did you just call me good? He answers his question, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. Again, these are all the commandments that have to do with how we interact with one another, how we love our neighbor. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. You see, Jesus recognizes that while he had those other commandments going and he had learned how to interact with, each, with other people, that his heart still was not submitted completely to God. God was not the first love of his life. When he came to Jesus, he actually had an agenda. He didn't submit as submitting to God. He wanted something from Jesus to validate his own goodness. And what ends up happening in this moment is pretty profound. Jesus tells him, okay, you've loved all of them. Now sell everything you have. What's the difference between the rich young ruler and the children who he had just received? The children, they could sell everything they have and give it to the poor. It wouldn't be too tough, would it? They don't have anything. They got nothing to lose. They just want Jesus and need Jesus. For this man... It's complicated. There's a little more going on. It's a little bit tougher to get to know God and submit to God, to believe in Jesus. There's stuff he has to let go of in order to trust. So Jesus tells him, all that stuff you have to let go of, let go of it. Come follow me. He knew that this man in his heart idolized himself. And he was self-dependent and self-reliant. And he couldn't actually follow Jesus, come after Jesus, submit to Jesus, unless he let go of the other stuff. And so Jesus appropriately names that stuff and says, let go of it and come with me. Don't believe that Jesus wanted to put this man in his place. Jesus wanted this man to come and follow him. Jesus loved him. But he knew 
that there were conditions for his ability to follow Jesus. He says, let it go. I'm telling you, let it go. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him. I love that Jesus looked at him. He doesn't turn to someone else and say this. He doesn't talk behind his back. He, he uses that as a teaching moment. But he stares this man right in the face and he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And you see, here it is. Again, the difference between the child and the rich young ruler. The child is in a place of need. Rich young ruler wants validation that he's got everything that he needs. It's a level of dependence. You can't come to Jesus when you're self-dependent. Skipping down to verse 31, the next story begins. <clears throat> Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. It will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Even those of faith were struggling to have faith to see the whole picture in this moment. And then in verse 35, as Jesus approached Jericho, so he's still heading south, and he's going to head over to Jerusalem. And he approaches Jericho. A blind man was sitting by the road, side begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now you're going to have to hold on to this story. This is an important one. What's happening here is there's a guy can't see physically at all. There's a crowd of people and Jesus is headed into Jericho. And now there's all sorts of, something's going on. You know, it's stirring. And he says, hey, hey, what's going on? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Notice what they call him? Jesus of Nazareth. How do they identify him? By the town he came from. What good can come out of Nazareth? You know, the, the, this prophet from up there, that guy, that guy Jesus, you know, the one we've heard about who's from up in Nazareth? Listen to how he responds. Listen to his response. He calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He doesn't say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David. This is a messianic term. Everyone else could see a person from Nazareth. But the blind man could see a person from heaven. You see, sometimes these eyes deceive us. Often these eyes deceive us. Faith is about the essence of things unseen. The things that these eyes can't tell. And oftentimes we become so reliant on these eyes like the wealthy man is reliant on his money. And we see things altogether wrong. The one in the moment who yells out first, 
the one in the scripture who gets the credit for first in this whole scene. Being able to see him as Messiah is the one who can't see him with his physical eyes, who can only see him with his heart and hear about him through the stories that have been told. And he matches it up with the scripture that he's heard. And doggone it, this guy is the Messiah. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. An incredible moment. Watch what happens. Those who led the way rebuked him. It's just like the disciples rebuking the children. The disciples said, Don't let the children come. And these guys, they rebuke him, like, Oh, here he goes, the blind guy again, like doing his thing, you know, and going crazy. And those who led the way rebuke him and told him to be quiet. But he shouts all the more. He will not be held back. The social norms, they don't matter to him. What's he have to lose? He's already the outcast. He's already the beggar. What does he have to lose? He doesn't have a lot of money that he has to lose. He doesn't have dignity that he has to lose. What does he have to lose? He doesn't have anything to lose. So when they tell him to be quiet, he doesn't listen to them. He doesn't care. He doesn't care what they're saying. They tell him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And here's Jesus walking to Jericho. Here's Jesus doing his thing, soaking it all up. And I would imagine that Jesus has been seeing this whole thing develop. And he's just kind of been walking, waiting to see what's going to happen. And this guy, and, and Jesus is loving it because this guy is, is putting on an absolute clinic for the rest of them about faith. He's one who has a need. He doesn't care what they think. He has nothing to lose. And he's coming after Jesus. And so the second time, when, when he, he pushes through whatever they're doing and, and doesn't care about what they're saying to him, and he shouts out again, Son of David, have mercy on me. See, Jesus is walking like this, and you can just picture him. Stop and just smile. And he turns around, and he looks at him. And while the man can't see him, he can see the man. And he says to him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. What an ironic answer. Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. Basically, what Jesus says is, receive your sight, your sight has healed you. Receive your physical sight, your spiritual sight has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God, When all the people saw it, they praised God. It takes a trailblazer sometimes. It takes someone who's willing to step out and believe even though no one else does. And it takes someone who's willing to take the risk and lose it all. And when they've tested the truth that God has given them, and they find that he shines like gold, then other people begin praising God too because it builds their faith. But oftentimes... The trailblazer has to be blind. They have to be blind to the accusations of others, blind to the peer pressure, blind to the wealth in their bank account, blind to whatever it is, in order to be willing to step out and trust Jesus. The story just gets crazier because chapter 19 begins and Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector Read, he was a big jerk. <laughs> he, 
He was the chief tax collector. No one likes him. And he was wealthy. Like the rich young ruler, he's wealthy. Difference is, is he's not tall, dark, and handsome and well-respected by people. He's the other kind of wealthy. Verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was. I love that phrase. He wanted to see who Jesus was. He had a curiosity about him. He's like those children. He wants to know. He wants to see who Jesus was. It's, it, it, you don't see a whole lot of agenda yet. I get the picture that Zacchaeus is like some kid. Okay, uh, Michael Jordan came into town, and some little kid who's been a big fan of Michael Jordan his whole life goes running across town because he wants to see Michael Jordan. Zacchaeus has heard about all this stuff, and he just wants to see him. He might want to get his autograph, you know? And he goes running, but listen to what happens to Zacchaeus. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. All right, so here it is. It's the little kid who wants to see Michael Jordan, but there's a big crowd of people. So he's kind of like jumping, trying to see him, and he can't see him. So he does an end around, and he goes whipping around the outside of the crowd, full sprint, going around everyone, finds this tree and climbs up in the tree and looks. When's the last time you saw a grown man do something like that? Jumping up and down in a crowd, trying to see something, and then doing a sprint around everyone, climbing up the tree in order to see somebody. He really wanted to see Jesus. He didn't care what anyone thought. You know why he didn't care? Because they all already hated him. He had nothing to lose. His reputation could not have gotten any worse. There was no one around who was despised more than this man. Caesar himself could have walked in and they'd have chosen him instead of Zacchaeus. He was socially challenged, to say the least. He was also physically challenged. This guy runs around, runs up the tree because he wants to see Jesus. Again, the picture of how Jesus deals with this is great. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up. I love it. Again, Jesus kind of walking down. I'm sure he saw the little man running out around the crowd, climbing up the tree, and he gets right under the tree. And he stops. And he just looks up. Zacchaeus, get down here. I'm going to your house. Why does Jesus go to his house? Because he's the one who actually wants him to come to his house. Yeah, everyone wants him because he's a celebrity. But he's the one who really wants him to come to his house. Jesus is so excited about the children in this situation. The children are the ones who, the toddlers who come up. The children are the blind man who can't see and needs help. The children... It's Zacchaeus who's jumping around and climbing trees and full-out sprints. Children who want to see the hero, who want to see their dad. Children. And that's what Zacchaeus is here. He's a complete child. And Jesus gets that smile on his face, and he directs him just like he would direct a child. Get down here right now. Down. This is a man who's wealthy and used to getting what he wants and probably not used to being pushed around. And Jesus just directs him. And he hops right down, gets in line. It's amazing. Jesus goes to his house. (coughs) You know how the rest of this story goes, right? All the people saw this and began to mutter. He's going to the guest of a sinner. Do you see who he's going with? 
oh, man, I swear this guy's such a glutton and a drunkard. That's what Jesus got called all the time. He hangs out with all the weird people, and he goes to the bars, and he does all this weird stuff. He hangs out with all these, like, crazy people. How come he keeps... He has all this power and everything. Why can't he just be a little more normal? Is he, you know? We've never ever heard any kind of talk like that. Never engaged in any, I'm sure. But Zacchaeus stood up. Love it. Stands up. There's a sense of value that's been invested in Zacchaeus now. And he stands up. And he said to the Lord... Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. Who did Jesus tell to give his possessions to the poor? The rich young ruler. Did he tell Zacchaeus? No, he didn't have to. He loved Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus felt the love. And when he did, he also felt the conviction. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. There goes the other half of his money. (laughs) You know that. You know this guy cheated so many people out of money. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. Here's another child of Abraham. We could get up and sing the song. Child of Abraham. Father Abraham. And, uh, and, and Zacchaeus would be right there singing it and dancing around and jumping around like all the kids because that's how he acted the whole day. And he says, Jesus, here's another son of Abraham. Here's another child. Here's another kid who's willing to receive what God has to give him and is willing to begin to be obedient when he realizes that, that God's going to provide for him. Unprompted, this guy gives away half of his possessions to the poor and then spends the lion's share of the rest of it trying to, to repay those who he had wronged. Jesus never has to tell him. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. What a beautiful moment. Those who had seen Jesus are the ones who really needed him, the ones who really wanted him who hadn't put a whole lot of stock or a whole lot of bank in anything else, because they couldn't. That blind man, the picture I get with him is like, you know when there's a kid who kind of gets a little lost uh, and and doesn't know where mom is? And it might even be in a family reunion, and there's all sorts of people around they know, but if they don't know where mom is, a problem. And so one of the other relatives could go and pick him up and they're wailing and arching their back because they want mom and they will not be held back until they get mom. That's the way this blind man is. You know, when he was going to Jesus because they're all trying to get him to stay back and he's like, get off of me. I am going until I get Jesus. And that's kind of how he was. Listen to what Jesus says to Zacchaeus here. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Are we lost children who desperately need to find dad? Are we the ones who need Jesus, who yearn for Jesus, who will not be held back from Jesus? No matter what anyone says, no matter what the social norm is, no matter what's going on in the worship service, no matter what's going on at work, I will not be held back because I need Jesus. I'm lost, and I need him. Well, seek me, and you will find me. 
when you seek me with all of your heart. One more story. Jesus decides to tell a story at this point. He says right here in verse 11, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Now I'll tell you the story and I'll paraphrase it and I'll put it into a little more modern terms. This is what Jesus says. <clears throat> There's a guy who lives in a town and he's going to be king of the region. So he goes to the other town, the capital town, to go and be crowned king. So he goes, but before he leaves, he takes five grand and he gives five grand to a few people and tells them, use this wisely, I'll be back. And he goes and he takes off to be anointed king. There's a delegation of people who come from his hometown who don't like him and try to stop him from being king. But he becomes king anyway. You get the picture? Jesus is going to be going and reign heavenly as king. There's a delegation of people. He's headed to Jerusalem to be crowned. There's a delegation of people who don't like him. He's going to heaven and be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. Delegation of people who don't want him to be but he invests into a few servants of his and says, Here, here's stuff to use while I'm gone. Well, he comes back, and he's king. And he comes back to his servants, and he says to the first servant, What would you do with the five grand? And the guy's like, You'll never believe it. I invested the five grand. I have 50 grand from this money. And the ruler just laughs, and he's like, Well done, nice work. I'll tell you what, I'm king now. I'm king now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you in charge of 50 towns because you were faithful with what I gave you. And the next one, what would you do with it? I invested it. I got 25 grand from that five grand. How about those yields? You know, I'll take a little of that. And so he's like, you get 25 cities. Go ahead, you have 25 cities. And then... The last one. What would you do with the $5,000 I gave you? Pulls out his wallet and he opens it up and he says, here, I kept it safe for you. Here's your five grand. And the king scratches his head. I gave you the five grand to do something with. What are you doing? I kept it safe for you. I know that you're a strict man. I know that you find a way to do amazing things. And <coughs> Excuse me, I was afraid frankly, that if I went to invest this and I lost the investment, I was going to be in trouble. So I just wanted to hold on to it for you, and it's safe and sound, so here you go. Are we okay? He has too much to lose. This is a man who's self-dependent. He does not trust in the character of the king. He does not take the king at his word and do what the king says because he doesn't trust the king and because he's got too much to lose, those who love their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And Jesus cements the paradigm of faith. Those who have too much to lose, those who have fear, have a hard time finding Jesus if they're afraid to lose their own life. Well, it brings us to the passage of the day. Starting in verse 28, 
after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethage and Bethany on the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and there you will enter it and you will find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, tell them the Lord needs it. So they go and they do that. In verse 35 then, it says, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. There's two different kinds of time in the scriptures. There's the time that we look at on our watches that you're wondering, how long is Tim going to go today? That's called chronos time. That's calendar time. That's, you put the roast in the oven, you turn it to 350, and you set it for 60 minutes or two hours or however long. That's chronos time. Obviously, I don't know my way around the kitchen. That's chronos time, calendar time, clock time, human time, rotation around the sun time. Then there's kairos time. Kairos time is the the time when you really know your way around the kitchen and you put the soup on the stove and you stir it and when it's ready, it's ready. And you keep tasting it, fulfillment. It's God time. God time is when things are ready. It's about when they're fulfilled. That's God time. And hopefully, that's when Tim will be done preaching today. I'll try to stick by the chronos time. This is a Kairos moment. This is a moment that has been waiting since the fall of mankind. All history has been waiting for the moment when the Messiah comes. The history books were written. The prophets spoke. Mankind has written about it. They've prayed for it. They've longed for it. They've made songs all about it. They've been waiting for the day when he will ride on that donkey and he will come down off of Mount Olives. And here he comes. The great hope of mankind made incarnate in flesh, bringing peace with him to them and to their city, Jerusalem, whose name means peace, ironically, kind of like Philadelphia means love. <laughs> but he will redefine love and he will redefine peace. And he comes to reign. The great hope of mankind and the solid rock promise of God has just stepped 
onto the donkey, has sat on the donkey, and is beginning to make his way to Mount of Olives. And the crowd begins to pulsate because they see what's happening. The Messiah is coming. And they start quoting these messianic passages. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They quote those angels. Remember the angels? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. When Jesus was born, they're, saying, they're quoting from the same spot. Here He comes. Peace on earth. The Messiah is coming. They understand what's happening. The Pharisees rebuke, say, tell them to stop. Jesus refers to something in Habakkuk. I want you to turn, if you have your scriptures, I didn't put this one on the screen. Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Jesus says, Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain, to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. These are the people who have too much to lose. The ones who are in fear, not living in faith. You have plotted the ruin of many people, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus refers to this passage and he says, The glory of the Lord will be made known. And all those who have built this city based on fear and unjust gain, Those who have too much to lose, beware, the day is here. If these people don't cry out, the stones will cry out. It's been prophesied from deep. I will be praised on this day, one way or the other. Choose which side you're on. Are you going to praise? Are you going to be a child who's willing and desirous to see the king come into town? Or are you going to be the religious leader who's afraid of losing your position? Or are you going to be all those who see physically, who are afraid that this guy doesn't fit the bill? Or are you going to be the rich man who's afraid he might have to lose his wealth? Let it all go. Worship me. If they don't, the stones will cry out. And Jesus says, verse 41, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, physical eyes and spiritual. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. If the people hadn't cried, the stones would have. And now the stones are going to be toppled and will not stay on top of one another. 
But Jesus walks into the stones as he walks through the temple, through the walls and into the temple. And as he walks in, everything ends right here in verse 45. He enters the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus walks into the stones that would cry out and the stones that will topple. He walks into the house that was created to worship him. He walks right up into the house of God and he's not recognized. Because true prayer, children who yearn for their father, long gone, they don't recognize him because they don't know him. They don't know him because they don't pursue him anymore in his house. Because when the music plays, they don't seek God. Because when the word is given, it's not God who they're coming after. It's something else. They're afraid to lose. They have too much to lose. I hope and pray that if Jesus walks in here today in human form, who knows what he looks like? Certainly doesn't, isn't going to look like who's in our children's Bible, you know? But say he comes in looking like an average American today. Will we recognize him? Will we praise him? Do we know him with the eyes of our heart like the blind man did? Or will we be inhibited by the physical eyes? Do we have too much stake in our own theology, in our own church to accept him when he comes walking in? Or is there a yearning within us that knows him deeply because of pursuing him with our hearts to the extent that whenever he manifests himself in whatever form, we respond like little children pursuing our king, pursuing our God, praising his name. I hope that on that day I would have been one who was a child who praised him. There's one way to know. Today's another Kairos moment. Today is another day where Jesus is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He has given us this day. It's the day the Lord has made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. And I will not deceive myself into thinking that how I would have reacted on that day is different than how I would react today. If I want to know where I would have been on that day, all I have to do is look at today. Am I a child who praises the king? Or am I an adult who has a little too much to lose? Don't make the stones cry out, because they will. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and you have been our king. And because of that, Jesus, it is uh, only fitting that we should be children who praise your name. God, teach us how to praise you. Teach us how to be joyful when you come into our lives. Teach us how to respond the way the blind man responds, the way Zacchaeus responds, the way the children respond, the way the people who threw their cloaks down and waved the palm branches respond. Teach us to be children who yearn for you more than anything else, who don't have too much dignity, money, sight, or position to keep us from praising you.
You have created us for this moment to be your people, to praise you. God, give us courage and eyes of faith to see you, to know you, to find you, to praise you. Praise be to God. In Jesus' name, amen.